everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. We're actually uh, taping in the same place. It's, it makes for a very different uh, uh, environment for us. We're actually in San Jose, at uh, getting ready to attend the NVIDIA GPU Technology Conference, which is starts tomorrow morning, I guess, with Jensen's keynote. Um, I don't think we can say much about that yet, about what there might be showing here. Obviously, I'm going to go out on a limb, though. Okay. I think Jensen's going to show up in a leather jacket. And probably talk for two hours. Probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, this is one of those events. There's not a whole, I was talking about this earlier. There's not a whole lot of events left like GTC that are very developer focused, uh, that have a clear, um, you know, uh, delineation. They have a clear mindset and goal, right? It's not here for the media. It's not even really here for the analysts. It's very much to showcase and demonstrate their capabilities on GPU technology and get all these developers and these researchers on board with them. It's been, it's been one of those things like, as you saw Intel cancel IDF, NVIDIA has almost ramped up GTC as showcasing their powerhouse in this space. Yeah, I hope they they stick to that. You know, Microsoft Build still is very developer-focused. Mm. I mean, on day one, uh, they're doing uh, code. So right. let's keep that going. I agree. So uh, we'll, we'll follow up with another podcast probably later this week about uh, the announcements that NVIDIA is going to make this week. But we might have uh, plenty of news to get to and stories to talk about. We're going to start with AMD and its situation that it found itself in over the last couple of weeks in uh, involving security. This is separate than Meltdown, than Spectre, any of those things that came up uh, since early January. Um, this was a separate report that came out from a security research firm called CTS Labs that basically detailed uh, what it considered to be severe security vulnerabilities that existed in AMD's modern architecture processors, Epic, Ryzen, uh, Ryzen Pro, et cetera. Um, the, the quickest, because this is kind of a, of a, I won't say an old story, but it's at least a week or so old now, <laughs> uh, in the world of the internet, that's pretty old. Summarize it to say that there were security issues that were brought up about the secure processor, which is like an ARM-based coprocessor built into the architecture, and then also some stuff about the the, the chipset itself that was involved in the in the Ryzen and Threadripper parts. Um, the there's a whole lot of stuff that happened on the outskirts of this. One is there's a debate, and I think a very worthwhile one to have about uh, did CTS Labs do this in the right way? Did they? give enough head start to AMD to help solve these? Did they send to fan the flames instead by only giving AMD less than 24 hours to actually address them before releasing them to the public without details of implementation, but details of them existing, which would then give other people the idea with which to pursue ideas of implementation. And then obviously there was the circus around the stock side of it, where a company called Viceroy came out with some other report where they claimed AMD should go bankrupt and it has a $0 value on its stock, which any reasonable person reading that would understand that it was kind of a crazy statement that had no value uh, and it did not ring true in any in any regard. Um, but AMD seems to have responded to it in the way that I feel is appropriate, taking it serious, but also acknowledging acknowledging the, the concerns with how the security vulnerabilities were raised. I was so glad that the industry responded uh, like it did. You know, you read stuff like this and you, you go through it yourself and, and you're just wondering, am I the only person 
that thinks this looks completely ridiculous. A hedge fund that gives zero value and uh, a security firm that gives AMD 24 hours when, what's the right word, um, credible security researchers will give 90 days. At and least. in retrospect, it uh, looks like NVIDIA is going to deliver patches within AMD. a few weeks to it's be AMD. able to effectively do that. And the prime reason, at least in the Anantech interview that I saw for CTS Labs not giving AMD the heads up was there's no possible way they could patch these in time. Yeah, and we're, we, to be fair, we are still waiting on on those patches. But AMD did release a statement where they said, you know, we've we've confirmed these vulnerabilities. We think they are kind of a second tier vulnerability because it does require you to have administrative access and rights on the system already. Whereas Spectre and Meltdown did not require that. Hence, why their severity was was so much higher. Uh, AMD, you know, has plans for BIOS updates that will, that will patch the firmware on the secure processor. They're still working on fixes and workarounds for the chipset-based uh, vulnerabilities as well. And I think AMD definitely took the high road in terms of not getting into a mudslinging fest, which have been very easy to do, and addressing the issues. And to be to be perfectly fair. Even though I, I think we both agree that CTS did this in a very poor fashion, it doesn't mean that the vulnerabilities weren't real. That's and right. That they shouldn't have been addressed. That's right. And they are real. They are, I think, significantly less crucial than CTS would have liked you to believe. But again, you're talking about a, uh, an organization that builds credibility based on finding these vulnerabilities, and right. So they want them to appear to be a bigger deal. They get more quotes. They're kind of in the in the news cycle for a little bit longer. But AMD's taking the right steps to address it. And um, I think it's almost to AMD's benefit that CTS Labs kind of went out in this crazy fashion with this because it that became the story. It wasn't so much the security vulnerabilities and whether or not they were severe or moderate or whatever. It was, what is this crazy situation? What is the circus, as the term I used before, really about? And, it, and it, it did a disservice to CTS if they were trying to make a name for themselves by instead sullying their name and giving AMD more credibility because they said, oh, look, we've reacted to this in less than 24 hours notice. You know, basically one less than one full week later, they've acknowledged, talked about the patches that were coming, that work was in progress. And, and I think they did a, a, an excellent job. I still would like to know who paid uh, for the research. Uh, in an interview that the executives from CT Labs uh, did acknowledge that there is somebody who paid and funded mm. this research. Mm -hmm. And I'd kind of like to know who this is. And given it, some some of this was used to drive AMD stock down, Yeah, it seems like if you follow the money, let's say the SEC launched some sort of an investigation into stock manipulation, that, that could get us to who actually paid for this. Yeah. There are rumors that people are saying, oh, this was an Intel-funded thing. And I, don't, I actually don't think that's even close to being something that would be what Intel would do. It seems more like this is a shorting scheme of some kind. Right. And I think that Viceroy company that we talked about earlier it has apparently been accused of such things in other uh, uh, stock markets across the world. So uh, we'll be following up on that as uh, AMD's patches come out. And, um, you know, we'll follow up and, and we'll start to see what people are seeing. If Is there any performance impact? AMD says no. Is there any compatibility impact? AMD says no. We'll need some some external validation on all that, all that as we go forward. 
Oh, this is an interesting bit of news that you wrote up on Forbes. Google has deployed Power 9 chips, which is something I would not have expected them to do. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, we all follow uh, different kinds of chips, and there's only three, quote-unquote, you know, languages that, that processors speak. They speak ARM, they speak x86, and they, they speak Power. And sure, there's stuff like MIPS still out there, but mm. those are rapidly declining. And uh, I've been following uh, what IBM and the Open Power Foundation have been doing with these uh, this this infrastructure and ecosystem. And it was very clear, even on Power Eight, that that IBM and the Open Power Foundation has a very good architecture. I mean, not only do they have uh, first with PCI Gen Four, but they have in NVLink. They have a, a thing called Open Capi which is essentially is a bi-directional memory coherent high-speed interface to mm-hmm. be able to put accelerator cards in. Okay. But uh, I think the industry, even though uh, IBM had some good wins in the enterprise, people were waiting for Google to move on this. They had announced uh, 18 months ago that they had ported all of their code, all of their code, and they had a server up and running uh, on this. But... I call it looking for for the D word deployment. That what that's what makes the difference between tire kicking and actually rolling it on commercial. And sure enough, last week uh, Google got on stage and said they were using the uh, Zias motherboard and platform with Power Nine on commercial workloads. And it's funny if I think if other companies had had this, it would have been on CNBC. But you know, IBM is very uh, software and services focused. It didn't yeah. get the airing, but literally, it doesn't mean they're not using Intel. Uh, but to me, what's interesting is the reason that they said they were using it. Uh, first and foremost, it it delivered the performance on core search, literally Google.com, hmm. as it related to. Uh, the memory bandwidth and capability. And Google's always been a big core shop. Uh, They've been known to overclock the biggest Xeons (laughs) out there. Uh, But also using it for RNN apps uh, related and using this OpenCAPI and NVLink with GPU accelerators. And it's this whole notion of running the code on the same machine as it did the training on, okay? Mm. So you do training and you do inference, then you have to actually have an application that uses right. the, out, the output of the inference. And they saw big advantages there. And the third one, which was probably the biggest shocker, was that they were putting high-speed uh, NVDIM uh, on an open CAPI bus uh, and using it instead of either Samsung or Intel's uh, high-speed uh, storage. Interesting. It- is this kind of IBM's play moving forward? Is this highly customized server infrastructure in comparison to what AMD can do, in comparison to what Intel can do? So, uh, first of all, it's big core, but it's heavy duty about accelerators. Um, in- Intel has their accelerator. It's just not what I would call open source. Sure. Okay. Um, AMD platform uses PCIe Gen 3. They're part of C6 and mm-hmm. these these different, but they don't actually have a product that supports an open, coherent uh, bus. And, and now uh, you have power platforms inside of Google, also Tencent, uh, Alibaba, um, and 
a lot of different uh, large installations out there. So yeah. it's, it's impressive. Again, this doesn't mean that Intel's not getting a ton of business. Yeah, they, Google hasn't moved not. 100% over to Power 9 Absolutely parts not. or anything like that. But it, yeah, that's impressive. And, and you, use, you, you mentioned like the importance of the word deployment. And, and right. in many of our conversations we've had about uh, ARM-specific server uh, designs, for example, from Qualcomm or 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 others, right? That they they've talked about testing, they've talked about partnerships, but they haven't talked about deployment yet. There were a few deployments that uh, I give Qualcomm credit for, uh, but it had been years of tire kicking in right. the ARM community. And to AMD's credit, they came out big time with with deployments, yeah. which I think, and I always bring this up, probably you know for the last. I don't know, seven years of writing about this, you know, to me, the huge difference between testing uh, and deployments. And then it begs the question, how big is the deployment? Sure. But I just think it's impressive that Google actually said it's deployed and what they called Google strong. Hmm. And I talked to the engineering director uh, at, at the open power summit. And she said that Google strong means it's reliable. This thing is rock solid. And she said, ready to rock and roll. Hmm. Interesting. Microsoft Teams um, has basically hit some milestones and released some new features. I will be the first to admit, I have not used Teams. I am a big, uh, all of the, the groups I have functioned with have been on Slack. Right. right. And we talked a little bit about Slack has had some technical issues as of late, which kind of leave an opening for these alternatives, Microsoft Teams being that. What, what, are, what are these new features or milestones that Microsoft is hitting that you think uh, will, will bring them out of, out of the trenches and into the mainstream? So most people, when they think of office productivity and doing new things, don't necessarily think of Microsoft. And uh, they're the 800-pound gorilla in this space mm. with Office. But if you remember how many years that uh, Google Docs, for instance, you may have used that with a web interface yep. and, and maybe on Android and on iOS. And then a few years later, Microsoft brought out, to their credit, a very high-quality Office 365 experience. But still, four or five years after, yep. Google did. And, and now you have companies like Slack, and with Google, they have Google Hangouts, which the next generation is, is Google Hangouts Chat, which uses things like bots and stuff like that. Yeah. But here we have Microsoft uh, announced that they have teams that's used over 200,000 companies in 181 markets and 39 languages. Okay. This is huge because this is not Microsoft, let's say, being behind Google. They have actually eclipsed Google compared to chat which it just came out of enterprise beta, which by the way, I use all these products. I use Teams, I use right. Slack, I use Google Hangouts chat. So to me, the big aha here was Microsoft going from what you would consider a slow follower mm -hmm. to a fast follower to, to right now being in the lead in this whole uh, chat race. I think they, I mean, there is no other a chat-based interface that uh, is this widespread with this many languages, with this many large businesses. Slack has a ton yeah. of small and medium-sized installations, mm -hmm. which you would expect. Um, but 
I, I, I just I'm really impressed with what Microsoft has been able to do here. What what power capability does this bring for them? What what why are the why is Microsoft of all companies striving to control this market? So uh, it's twofold. First of all, they have the franchise and office productivity software and services, and they don't want to lose it sure. uh, to, to some new type of upstart type of program. The other thing is, typically, you can attach a ton of services to this. So, you know, today, uh, we're just thinking about using Slack and yeah, maybe using one bot here or there. But what right. this does is that this previews all of enterprise workflow. So, for instance... Uh, this is where all of these companies want to end up is uh, surrounding, you know, their SAP system or their uh, systems of record. Let's say doing an expense statement where it goes from step to step and literally you're not programming this thing for six months for automation. You're just setting up some bots, right. sending to the right people and, and watch. This is where this, this all ends up. Uh, and that's why Microsoft is just so, so intent uh, about winning here. Some of these features that they mentioned that are slated to arrive later this year are really impressive. Just reading them off the list. Cloud recording, right? So recording meetings, one click to the cloud, automatic transcription and time coding, which enables all the members to read captions, search within the conversation, even going as far as including facial recognition. So remarks could be automatically attributed to specific attendees. Uh, inline translation, you mentioned Cortana voice interactions, uh, background blur Which, on by video. by the way, is one yeah. of my favorite. Yeah. Right? Because I can be doing a meeting anywhere, and it's very simple, blurring the background. Right. So you're not seeing either my ugly wallpaper <laughs> or, you know, I'm sitting in a, a disgusting hotel room in Las Vegas <laughs> trying to do CNBC or something. Yeah. So... Uh, it's it's a super interesting technology, and, it, and even just kind of looking over their their plans and lists shows that they have some really substantial work ahead of them, but also substantial capability. Yeah, the other element here is going for the conference room, right? Mm. Who owns the conference room today? It's people like Cisco. Cisco, yeah. Uh, it's all of the the major uh, UCS platforms that typically have still have lease lines, mm. and everybody's going vo voice over IP, but. When you look at uh, what they launched last week with all of these Skype systems, uh, I don't think anybody's going to touch Microsoft on the team's hardware infrastructure uh, either. And, and that's something that I haven't seen from Google or Cisco and certainly I haven't seen from Slack yet. Google has some incredible, uh, sorry, uh, Google and Cisco both have uh, some point hardware solutions, mm -hmm. uh, but the breadth they're just missing. And I, I just think... Uh, I feel really comfortable about uh, uh, how Microsoft is doing here. Another event uh, that I was going to attend but was out on vacation, you actually uh, had some ends with here. Intel had a healthcare event called Solve. And this is their play into going vertical, leaning into AI, uh, and with the Xeon brand at that, for healthcare initiatives. Um, what, what did you learn about how Intel was kind of diving into this ecosystem and, and how are they, how exactly is, first of all, how, how are they going into it vertically and then how does going into it vertical, vertically help them differentiate from the, the other players? Yeah. So Intel has telegraphed over the last year or so that, that they saw some promise in key verticals and healthcare was one, retail uh, and financial and, and automotive. And 
going deep in them and running end-to-end plays uh, inside of them. And the other thing is we've talked about on here before is getting a connection for AI. Now, the irony is, is that most of AI is still done on processors, okay? Leading edge training and deep learning is done on GPUs. But right. GPUs are getting all of the accolades everywhere. Here we are, right? What are we going to see tomorrow at GTC? Uh, undoubtedly, uh, a large portion of deep learning. A lot AI. of GPUs yeah. and a lot of deep learning. So uh, what Intel did is, is with their new Xeon Scalable, uh, leveraging things like AVX 512, the fact that you can actually do training and inference and run the program on the same machine right. uh, or the same rack uh, inside of a data center literally brought out 20 credible healthcare partners who literally got up there and said, we're using Xeon Scalable to do AI, okay? Hmm. Which goes against the grain of GPU-only yeah. uh, AI, but reaffirms the reality of, of how a lot of customers do that. Now, nowhere anywhere you know, did Intel it was trying to do a sleight of hand. They never said that GPUs weren't part of this. or They didn't that, say they were faster than GPUs. That's exactly right. Yeah. But what they did do is they put up some very credible people to tell their story for them, which is exactly what they had to do. Because if Intel stood up and said... AI on Xeon is 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 the best. Right. Nobody's going to listen to them or, or or believe them. So it, it was interesting. Even when I was first being briefed on these Xeon scalable processors, gosh, six months ago, nine months ago, um, they they brought up the discussion. Intel brought up the discussion of of uh, artificial intelligence and deep learning and, and training mm-hmm. on on Xeon parts. And a lot of the questions they were getting from our group was, yeah, but how can you compete against Nvidia? How can you compete against even AMD or even these companies that you're acquiring like Nirvana or, or Movidius, right? Because these are ones who specialize in that. And and a lot of it comes down to, at least in my view, is, is, is kind of AI by convenience. You have this hardware there. You have this technology already in place. You're using it for other purposes. Um, you know, I, you know. I think back at the at, at the the original briefing days, they talked about, yeah, but you're doing that stuff during the day, so why not at night or in off times? Why aren't you using these processors for something else? And I think that's a valid option. But also, it, it is just all day. These processors are probably good enough for the purposes at which these healthcare companies are going to utilize them. Not that there's not plenty of uses for. NVIDIA GPUs in, you know, solving cancer or, you know, Alzheimer's disease or something like that. But there are other use cases that don't demand the same kind of performance or level of performance. That's right. And um, very few of these were research only. Okay. Yeah. They were actually um, typically doing something with the research. Yeah. Applying the, the learnings of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I, it, this wasn't about, I don't know. They, they talked taking, about you know, ideal computational foundation, right? It was a quote that you used in your story, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, scaling up quickly, right? That's something you can do with an existing infrastructure that your IT department is already familiar with, that your 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 hospitals and systems already utilize. It's it's it makes a lot of sense when you talk about it in that way and to, and to bring up those people that you list off in this article is, is really impressive. Well, it's funny. Uh, a lot of these folks got up and, and the amount of the data set that they had was bigger than the memory in the GPU card. 
yeah. and, and therefore had a lot of swapping uh, going going back and forth, which uh, is is interesting. And who knows? Maybe we'll see something tomorrow. Yeah. You never know. You could. Uh, but I think that's an interesting avenue for, for Intel to address on the healthcare side there. Uh, Xilinx. This is, this is an interesting discussion. I actually was just talking with somebody this evening about it, how suddenly FPGAs are, are back and big and popular. The move into AI, uh, an important part of this. What did th- this is, uh, I think it's pronounced ACAP. That's right. Announcement. You know, almost nothing is fitting into CPU, GPU, FPGA, or ASIC. Right, yeah. so everybody's coming up with with something new, and ACAP stands for Adaptive Computer Acceleration Platform, and it really is a platform because you you have F, a big huge FPGA, you have some fixed function capabilities, and you have a processor. So in a way, this is a a kind of a supercharged uh, SOC that can be programmable and and on the fly and. Uh, particularly just giving even more competition yeah. to deep neural networks out there. They say it has at its core a new generation. We're reading from reading from this VentureBeat story, a new generation of FPGA fabric with distributed memory and hardware programmable DSP blocks. It does sound surprisingly more complex than what people envision. This is definitely not an just an FPGA. This has a big, huge FPGA, but what a lot of these FPGA companies are getting into is building what I would consider uh, an SOC, but putting the right pieces of building blocks that that are on there. And you know, we're, we saw how Microsoft uh, with their FPGAs. Now they're using Microsoft using Altera FPGAs, mm-hmm. but they're bouncing back and forth between uh, network uh, functions and um, inference on the same system, on the same chip, where they reprogram the chip based on what they want to do. Yeah. And they, Xilinx, claim, Xilinx claims they spent four years and a billion dollars of R&D on yep. this. This is what a billion dollars uh, will, will get you uh, for certain. And based on where uh, Xilinx plays, so Xilinx, I expect this to play really well in cars, for cars that have a distributed system, mm-hmm. Xilinx has a ton of silicon doing uh, LiDAR uh, part of ADAS systems. Mm-hmm. And I'm also expecting to see this in uh, data centers. Uh, so it's ex- some exciting stuff. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, Facebook, who has seen better weeks, <laughs> I guess would be uh, a nice way of putting it. Uh, I haven't checked today how if the stock has dropped again today, but I think I saw a tweet come across of they've lost a hundred billion dollars in market value or something like that. Um, can can you summarize for me what what in the heck happened to them over the last week that has caused this? Yeah, so I always like to separate uh, perception from reality because in a way, a lot of the stuff that's being pointed out is is what Facebook has been doing uh, all along. But Mm. this special incident is essentially allowing Cambridge Analytica, uh, who supposedly had a part uh, in um, uh, the Trump administration, him getting actually elected, Mm. um, them keeping user data, okay, and using it in a way that that, – 
supposedly they, they were not supposed to do. Okay. Okay. So abusing it. Um, and part of me, when I, when I look at this, it says, I, I am pretty sure there have been other people who have abused and used this data. I think a lot of the angst right now has to do with anything that could have helped uh, Trump get into sure. uh, power. Because, you know, this, this has caused people to essentially go in and look at all of the apps that they've used Facebook login for, mm-hmm. right? And every one of those has, has a certain set of data that they're taking from you. And maybe it's just because I'm tech inside the Beltway guy, but uh, I have kind of always expected that to happen. Now, there is a <laughs> difference, though, between um, using data in a way that, let's say, local laws and regulations like the FTC, uh, who, by the way, did launch an investigation on Facebook today. Yeah. After, by the way, they uh, Facebook had to pay a fine, I think it was in 2010, for misusing uh, private information huh. as well. So uh, what are your term. thoughts on this? So it was interesting. I... The other thing I saw that happened in the last day or two was uh, some programmer went through. You can there's a link you can download all your Facebook data, and he went through all this and he found, depending on what OS you're using, if you're using Facebook on Android versus Facebook on iOS, the Android version of Facebook was logging every text message, every call, not just through Facebook Messenger, but right. every. SMS message through it. Now it didn't log contents, but it logged, you know, who it was and and how long the duration was of the call, uh, and it had all your contacts and and all the information that they would have as well. And and what I also find interesting about this is not that I am shocked that this has been happening, or that I am even shocked that suddenly the public cares. What I find interesting is that I don't think anybody really. It, that it really impacted anybody until somebody was willing to go back and, you know, Facebook has been gathering this information on you for a significant amount of time now. And now you can go back to 2006, 2007 right. and say, oh my gosh, it has everything I've ever done from 2006 to 2007 to 2008. Every person I've talked to, even if I, they're not in my contact list anymore, even if I never emailed them in the last decade, they still have all this information. And I think it's the totality of that, that is making people kind of sit up and now question and, and the FTC to, you know, encourage the FTC to get involved and uh, all that. It's So what do you think is going to happen with all of this? Uh, you know, I, I tend to think that, I mean, the way the news cycle works, we're going to find something new <laughs> uh, to bitch about in 10 days. By the way, not that this isn't a very valid argument, because sure. I do think it is, but what I've seen, and even the research that I've done, consumers over time have been willing to give up more of their information for more of a benefit. Mm-hmm. And when these big blow-ups have happened, a lot of people just go back to doing what they're doing. Viruses and security on your devices is, is mm-hmm. one thing. How many people still click on a stupid phishing link, yeah. even though they've read about it, they've heard about it, or don't run an antivirus program, um, leave their front door open, I mean, at night. I mean, it's just, I just don't see this making a long-lasting change uh, out there. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in that I kind of don't think it will. I'm, I'm hopeful that it would. And it's not, I'm not wishing Facebook to go under or, or anything like that. But what I do want is for people to be more cognizant of what data they are giving up. 
if, if you if you are aware of that and you're still comfortable with it to get the benefits of all the you know personalized assistant the AI assistants your your on your phone and on your on your laptop and whatever else um, you know your your shopping recommendations on Amazon all these things are are a result of that information it's 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 I think it's scary when you when you can see a decade of it in a zip file I think I think that's what it comes down to but I but I am I'm still with you. I think the uh, the mob mentality that is going around that is a very small mob of, oh my gosh, I'm going to delete my Facebook app. You know, I thought about that yesterday. I was like, okay, I could delete Facebook. And then how will I see the pictures that, how will I ever communicate with my family that I don't see every day? How, how will I see That's what my exactly, aunt is up to? How, how will I know, how will my yeah. mom know what my daughter is doing if I'm not posting a picture to Facebook? Yeah, you know what? There's no alternative. No, there's not going to go to Twitter. And oh, by the no, way, to no. be able to fund an alternative, first of all, you need to have a network of almost everybody in your family being on the same thing. Yep. And we went through, there was MySpace first, rest in peace, uh, and then and then there's Facebook. By the way, your core point, I wish that, and I'm, I love what Apple does in, in regards to privacy. Apple and also I'll put Microsoft in there are the most diligent uh, of of really caring about people's uh, privacy, and I think that we should be more open. I think that companies mm-hmm. that make their information based on private information should be a little bit more opaque. But then it's funny. Let me talk about. I'll, let me talk out of the other side of my mouth. <laughs> How often have you been? Um, notified by Google to check out your privacy settings and Facebook too. Right. So, okay. Ignore. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So again, I, I'm usually more, a little bit more opinionated on this and more (laughs) definitive, but at this point in a way I'm talking to both sides of my mouth. And when I was trying to think about would people leave Facebook, I was thinking about distributed families who Facebook is their primary motive. keeping in touch. Yeah. Right. And to to ask to, to think that consumers would abandon that based on a very important principle, mm-hmm. um, I still don't think uh, is going to happen. And it's a principle that I think still the vast majority of people don't understand. Right. The vast majority of Facebook users, not the people that listen to this podcast, not the people who are following it on Twitter. Uh, it's it's the billions of other people that are using it that have no idea the implications. So and they're kind of liking the quote-unquote free to them mm-hmm. services they get. Yeah. Let's not forget where this all started, which was, well, started with credit cards, yeah. uh, but it, then it moved to free email, free calendar, right? And then free online documents. It's such a steal. It is. Literally, maybe. All right, everybody. <laughs> That's going to be it for uh, this episode. Like I said, we'll probably have a follow-up later in the week that looks at um, the interesting stuff we saw from NVIDIA's GPU technology conference. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ryan Shrout. Patrick is at Patrick Moorhead. And uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks, everyone.